Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, good morning and welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons of England. My name is Simon Chaplin. I'm director of the Hunterian Museum here at the college. And on behalf of the college, the Hunterian Museum and the Grant Museum of Zoology at University College London, it's a pleasure to welcome you to this day of talks exploring Darwin's London. Uh, before I start with the introductions, a few words of housekeeping. Um, first of all, if the fire alarm should sound, and you won't miss it if it does sound, um, uh, we will need to leave the building. And if we could gather on the other side of the road opposite the college uh, outside Lincoln's Infields, I hope we shan't be disturbed today. But if we are, the fire exits are through the door you entered, the door at the back, or the door, door at the side there. Secondly, if you have mobile phones, could I ask that you turn them off or switch them to silent so that uh, they don't disturb us during the talk? And third, for those of you who use hearing aids, there's an induction loop fitted in the uh, auditorium. If you'd like to turn your hearing aids to uh, the correct setting, you should uh, have a, be able to pick up the uh, amplified sound. Uh, this morning we're going to have four talks uh, broken into two sessions. There will be a short comfort break between the two. Um, at lunchtime, uh, tea, lunch, tea and coffee will be served in the council room and committee room one, where coffee was served this morning. Uh, toilets are situated back along this corridor on the left-hand side. That's enough of the housekeeping. On to the business of the day, uh, the talks, which I hope will entertain and enlighten you something which forms part of a year of celebrations, Darwin 200, celebrating the bicentenary of Charles Darwin's birth and 150 years since the publication of On the Origin of Species, a book which has changed the landscape of modern society, one of the most important scientific works of all time. Now, obviously, there's a lot of Darwin-related activity going on this year, and in casting around for something which we hoped would offer a distinct and unique perspective on Darwin, we thought a day which explored the relationship between Darwin and London in all its facets would be a unique contribution. This morning we're going to hear about the places in London where Darwin worked and also learn something of London as it was in Darwin's time. Um, I'm very pleased to say that introducing our session this morning, we have Professor Steve Jones. Professor of Genetics, University College London. Um, in addition to his scientific work, Steve has written and lectured for academic and non-academic audiences. He's a regular uh, a broadcaster appearing on radio and television. His publications include The Language of the Genes, which won the Roan Palenque Prize in 1994, and his latest book, Darwin's Island Traces, Darwin's Relationship with England, England as a Centre for Innovation, and a place which inspired Darwin's work. And Steve's interest in all things Darwin and botanical is brought together this weekend when he opens the Chelsea Flower Show, which has a Darwin-related theme this year. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Steve to tell us why Darwin matters. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, why Darwin matters. Um, I give my uh, lectures, many of my lectures at UCL, uh, my first, certainly my first year lectures, I start them with a statement that I'm speaking to you from Darwin's bunker. And that's literally true because I am quite literally speaking 
um, in the Darwin Lecture Theatre, which is on the site of Charles Darwin's London home um, and was probably, uh, within the limits of, uh, of uh, scientific accuracy, was probably his coal hole. Um, and I used to, I used to uh, think that this was merely a metaphor. Um, uh, I used to think this was, this was merely a statement of fact, but now it's become rather a metaphor because, of course, now, somewhat to our surprise, biologists find themselves having to refight some very old battles when they discover that there is a strong anti-Darwinian current, um, not only in the United States, which is e where it's easy to mock at a, sa at a safe distance, but also here in Britain. And I want to talk briefly about uh, perhaps why that's reappeared, this creationism nonsense has reappeared, um, why, of course, Darwin was right, um, and, and why there are limits to what Darwinism can say about ourselves, and, those, and exceeding those limits may actually have something to do with the rebirth of the great anti-Darwinian theme that we see in some parts of the world around us. Well, um, uh, I've found myself, as of many people in this room, many biologists, uh, very much occupied over the last few months um, in uh, promoting things Darwinian. And I've accepted a couple of uh, talks, which perhaps in retrospect I shouldn't have done, and I exclude this, of course, from that category. Um, for example, I was found myself um, a couple of days ago uh, in Westminster Abbey discussing, and I hadn't uh, bothered to find out what we were supposed to be talking about, um, a title, the title was utterly absurd. It was, Did Darwin Kill God? Well, as, West, as Charles's bones are actually in Westminster Abbey, I think it was probably more accurate to say that God killed Darwin. Um, um, and it seemed to me an utterly foolish question. The two things have nothing to do with each other. It wasn't quite as foolish, or perhaps slightly even, it was just as foolish as something I found myself talking about in St. Paul's Cathedral about three months ago, where once again, as I wandered in, I said, what are we talking about? Uh, the question, the, uh, the um, topic was, um, why are we here? Uh, a Darwinian view. And I looked blankly, and I thought, oh, my God, what can I say about that? And as I uh, began, I said, well, I don't know why we are here, but I know why I'm here. <laughs> it's because you can't afford Richard Dawkins. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> but those two t topics, to me, show how Darwinism has gone too far. Uh, Darwinism, although it's a wonderful science and it makes sense of the whole of biology, says remarkably little. It says nothing about religion. It says almost nothing about the human predicament um, and human society. And I think we have to be very careful about going too far, as I say, in that, um, in that, uh, in that direction. At the Westminster Abbey event, I was rather poo-pooed by uh, Lord Bob Winston, um, who started his presentation by saying, of course, it was completely stupid to claim that anybody in the world today, um, or anybody in Britain today at least, believed in young earth creationism and to, to knock over, to criticize um, uh, the biblical account was simply foolish. This was simply uh, kicking, down, kicking a straw man when he was down. And when I started, I pointed out that for the last two or three years, when I've given my introductory evolution lectures in Darwin's bunker, there have been emails and even once a petition from students, uh, signed by quite a few students, asking either that they be allowed not to attend those lectures, or that I shouldn't give them, or that there should be no, question, no questions related to them in the exam, because such lectures insulted their religion. So this notion, really, that creationism is dead and Darwinism has triumphed, even among biologists and their biology students, of course, um, is quite wrong. If you believe a recent, uh, a recent um, uh, a 
opinion poll here in Britain, there are something like five million creationists even in Britain. As I said to my publishers recently, I don't mind if those guys uh, burn my books as long as they buy them first, but they don't show much sign of doing that. So what did Darwin do, and why was it important, and why was it perhaps less important than many people might, might, hope, might hope? Well, I guess we all know, or we think we know, what Darwin did. Um, but let's just remind ourselves how much of an intellectual revolution he himself experienced in his life, particularly, in fact, in his London life, which is far more important to his uh, thinking than his, uh, his brief five weeks upon the Galapagos. There he was just a data gatherer. He didn't start writing up his thesis, as it were, and it took him about 40 years rather than the seven it took me to finish my PhD um, um, until he got back to London. So London, quite genuinely, is, it was the intellectual hotbed that made Darwin um, what he was. He, clearly, on the Beagle, he had no notion, no real notion of evolution. For example, as I was in Australia uh, a few weeks ago, and Darwin has a great line in his diaries there. As he looks at the bizarre animals and plants of Australia, he suggested it was almost as if there were two separate creations. Now, if, that's a if that isn't a statement of anti-evolutionism, I don't know what is. Then, of course, he famously got to the Galapagos, and indeed, he didn't make many comments on the Galapagos about the possibility of change. There's a famous line, in, again, in his, in his diaries, where he landed on the island then called Albemarle, and he noted that the giant tortoises on, on Albemarle were smaller, darker, and had a sweeter taste when cooked than those on another island, which is a rather rare combination of taxonomy and gastronomy, which we haven't actually um, seen ever since. And then, of course, he came back to London and this famous sketch of the late 1830s, which everybody knows, which has, I think, was scribbled out, uh, but in the middle of, of trying to persuade Camden Council to allow us to generate an enormous 60-foot-high version of that sketch on the front of the Darwin building in, uh, in, in, in gold, in, be in beaten gold, very thin gold, I have to tell you. And if we succeed in doing that, I hope that will really make, uh, 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 draw people's attention to the importance of Gower Street and of London in, uh, in, Darwin's, in Darwin's thinking. So what, what was Darwin's contribution? Well, it was, of course, enormous. Darwin in, Charles Darwin, in fact, invented a whole new science, a science called biology. Before the origin, there were plenty of absolutely first-rate scientists out there studying life, digging up fossils, breeding plants and animals, discovering new kinds of creature in remote places. So there was a huge amount of science going on. But none of them actually realized, until the origin, that they were all actually doing the same thing. They were all studying evolution. And that notion is so firmly embedded in modern biology that many modern biologists don't realize it themselves. But they are. Every time a young undergra an undergraduate does, uh, does a biological experiment, which nowadays, 99% of the time, simply involves pushing a button on a machine that goes ping, um, then they are basically doing evolutionary biology. When they sequence DNA and they compare human with chimp or with mouse DNA, they are, of course, doing evolution. So evolution pervades the whole of biology. I often think that if biology is a, lang is a, a language, then the theory of evolution is its grammar. You cannot learn a language unless you understand the way it's put together, either consciously, as if you learn a foreign language, or unconsciously if you're speaking your native language. It's the, it's the grammar that makes the language make sense. That's what Darwin did. He made the science of life make sense. So that clearly is extraordinarily important. Um, I, a few years ago, had the rather eccentric scheme of uh, rewriting or updating 
the origin of species. About 20, year, 20 or 30 years ago, in fact, myself and some colleagues thought of writing a, a, a university-level textbook of evolutionary biology. And at that time, there really wasn't a good one. Uh, there are now several. But at that time, um, I had the, uh, the idea, well, we should do that. But what we should do is to write it using the structure of Darwin's long argument, which is what he called the origin, as if it were being written today. So myself and three or four considerably more distinguished biologists got together and started, started penciling in what we would put into this book. And it soon became clear, it was a bit like um, Borges's map in his short story, uh, where somebody draws a map of a South American country, which is big, it's as big as the whole country. It covers the whole country. Um, and, of course, it's an extraordinarily detailed map. Um, had we done that at the, at the academic level, the book would not have been um, a textbook. It would have been a shelf of uh, extremely solid and boring um, technical works. And that, of course, is what Darwin spent much of the rest of his life doing. He published 19 books altogether, not just the origin, and many of them are, I have to say, I shouldn't say in this gathering, many of them are somewhat, um, shall we say, dry, but all of them are extraordinarily important in the history of biology and indeed in modern biology. So we didn't do it as a textbook, but a few years later I started scribbling down the notion for a popular book based on that. And, um, and I, was, um, I make no particular claims for the merits of the book itself, but I was astonished, and I genuinely was astonished, how extraordinarily well Darwin's structure, the framework of the origin, stood up in the light of modern biology. It was a bit like the kind of thing that you see happening around this part of London quite often. I think it's actually happening just around the corner. I went for a, a stroll. In the 60s and 70s, and I used to live down in the 70s, I used to live just a few hundred yards from here, um, there were a number of buildings of quite spectacular vileness were thrown up, as you will remember, um, in this very beautiful part of town, uh, covered in cheap concrete and uh, grubby glass windows. And what's happening to several of them now, I notice, is actually their facades are being taken off and the steel frame remains and people are making them nice and, nice and postmodernist by bolting on a bit of false Georgian architecture or, um, and making them fit in rather better with, them, with, the, uh, with their surroundings. And that's basically what I felt like when I was writing Almost Like a Whale, which is my Origin of Species book. The steel framework was Darwin. The facade was mine. And it was astonishing that you could bring in the most recent developments in evolution of viruses, say, or in brain science, and it slotted in quite neatly into the Darwinian logic. So Darwin really had the most astonishing ability to predict the way that biology was going to go. Well, since then I've become... I tell all my students in their first lecture too of the horrors of plagiarism, that they really shouldn't be... Uh, they shouldn't steal work from the Internet and present it as their own. And I tell them about uh, little computer programs we've got that are supposed to, they're supposed to pick that up. Um, we don't need a computer program. I was just marking an, an essay the other day by a 19-year-old student which said, as I said in my 1968 paper, um, <laughs> so you don't really need a computer. But I always feel a bit embarrassed when I'm giving them this dire warning because, of course, I then became a serial plagiarist, and for the next 20 years or 15 years, I spent in rewriting the rest of Charles Darwin's works, and barnacles and coral reefs, and my, my most recent book has got the earthworms and all that kind of stuff in it. And it was quite astonishing what, um, what he was able to do. And it was astonishing the way that when you're talking about um, human evolution, let's say, you can actually illustrate the principles by looking at the evolution of HIV. It's astonishing, and Darwin astonished the world, by um, investigating the possible 
dangers of inbreeding, and as we all know, he married his own cousin and was very concerned that that might harm his children. Uh, what did he do? He actually went out and looked at inbreeding in flowers. Um, there was no, in his mind, there was no barrier between the rules that control the sexual life of flowers and the rules that control the sexual life of humans, which is why, in fact, I'm, I have this rather bizarre honor of opening the Chelsea Flower Show tomorrow. Um, but there is a limit, and Darwin saw that limit, and many people saw that limit um, when it comes to using Darwinism to explain ourselves. Um, in some senses, that's where Darwin does not matter. Uh, Gilbert and Sullivan... Uh, in, uh, in, in Princess Ida, a few years after the origin, came out with a deathless line, Darwinian man, though well-behaved, is nothing but a monkey shaved. Okay. Now, I can see we're shaved monkeys, all of us in here. Some of us are a bit more shaved than others, as I cast my eyes around the room. Um, and clearly, in some senses, that's true. If we look at ourselves and chimpanzees, we share about now about 95% of our DNA. And rather interestingly, if we look at our own physical structure in relation to that of chimpanzees, we can see many changes, and some of the most striking ones are actually those of decay. Many of the genes that work in chimpanzees don't work in us. Uh, chimpanzees smell much better than we do, in the sense that they have much better organs of scent than we do. Um, they are much stronger than we are. I don't know whether any, any among you have ever picked up a young chimpanzee. It's rather a frightening experience. Uh, that's because the genes that make their muscle proteins, particularly the ones that uh, work in the jaw, and you do not want to be bitten by a chimpanzee, uh, our versions have, have broken down and uh, simply far less effective than they were. Um, and that's largely, I think, because the site of human evolution or human change has moved. It's moved from body to mind, which isn't to say, of course, that the brain is not the, is not the product of evolution. Of course it is. But once you move from simple physical evolution to the evolution of ideas, then really you begin to see the limits of what Darwinism can tell you. There's um, one of the odd things, actually, about human physical evolution is how little of it there has been since modern humans first appeared. I have the rather dubious distinction now of living not in charming Bloomsbury, but in considerably less charming Camden Town. And uh, if I were to get on, as I did this morning, at the tube, on the tube at Camden Town tube station, and a uh, Cro-Magnon man was to come and sit next to me, I probably wouldn't notice. Um, he might be covered in mud and grunting, but this is Camden Town, after all. Um, that's, about par, that's about par for the course. Um, there are plenty of people who look extremely prehistoric lurching around the tube station. Um, but, of course, from the Cro-Magnon's man's point of view, or woman's point of view, it would be a completely astonishing experience, traveling at speed underground, um, people twittering to each other and uh, reading large leaves in front of their faces. Um, from their point of view, they'd be, almost be on a new planet, Physically, though, they, that them, they and us are almost the same. So that almost, almost everything that's interesting that's happened to us is in some senses post-Darwinian. Many socio sociologists, though, I think have failed to notice that. Um, uh, there's a whole science of human sociobiology, which is easy to mock, so I keep mocking it, uh, which explains the whole, every human attribute, marriage, society, crime, music, poetry, love, laughter, the lot, in Darwinian terms. It's what I call arts faculty science. It's a wonderful pastime. You have wonderful and marvelous ideas, and you don't need any evidence. Darwin would have hated that. Darwin had a statement in his autobiography, my mind has become a kind of machine to grind general laws out of great collections of facts. And Darwin depended on facts. He didn't depend on opinions. And this is what 
neo-Darwinism, social Darwinism, sociobiology depends entirely on, or almost entirely on, is the fertile imagination of those who write the papers. Of course, it is the case that we owe something of our nature, our being, our society, to our ancestors, to our ancestry. Um, the example I, often, I always give is the, puni the worst punishment you can inflict on somebody, apart from hanging or electrocuting them as a criminal, is to put them into solitary confinement. And uh, that's widely done in the United States. There are something like 10,000 American prisoners who are in solitary confinement. Um, Masawi, on Masawi, who was condemned to solitary con confinement uh, um, a few months ago, he, one of the alleged 9-11 um, plotters, he was told by the judge, you will never speak again and you will die with a whimper. Um, he won't die with a whimper. He'll die with a scream because he will certainly go mad as everybody putting into solitary confinement always does. And that's, of course, a statement of our evolutionary past because we descend from social primates, from creatures we, which are not dissimilar, were not dissimilar probably, to today's chimpanzees. And to be taken away from that drives us very quickly to our wit's end. Had we descended from an ancestor shared with a much more solitary primate, like, let's say, the orangutan, the worst punishment you could give anybody would be to send them to a dinner party. Um, <laughs> I think I've been to those dinner parties. Um, but in some senses, uh, there is some biology in what makes us what we are. However, most of what makes us what we are is unique. And uh, in terms of a sense of the past, in terms of language, a sense of the future, a sense of responsibility to those who aren't our immediate relatives, all these things are unique. Evolution is overwhelmingly a comparative science. It is not very good at all at understanding things that are unique. I can illustrate that and end up with a, perhaps the world's only Darwinian joke. It may not be. No, I know two or three others, each of which is equally feeble. Um, a, a joke that goes back to this notion of, Darwin, of ev evolution as the grammar of biology, of evolution as a language. It's actually a joke my father told me many years ago, and he didn't actually realize that uh, it had any evolution, Darwinism in it, but it definitely does. Um, I'm actually speaking my second language at the moment because my first language is or is, was Welsh, and I was brought up in West Wales and Aberystwyth. Um, a very Welsh-speaking town then in the 1950s, uh, which it still is as long as there are English people in the room. Um, <coughs> and um, my um, father told me the joke about the Aberystwyth's only Chinese restaurant where somebody goes in and uh, serves a very nice Chinese meal by a clearly Chinese waiter who speaks perfect Welsh. And uh, the uh, customer is amazed, so he beckons over the owner, and in Welsh he says to the owner, well, boy, he says, where do you get this amazing fellow from? A Chinese who can speak perfect Welsh. And the owner looks a bit startled and said, oh, keep your voice down, boy, oh, he thinks he's learned English. <laughs> <laughs> and that actually, I think, is a summary of the limits of Darwinism. Because everything that makes us what we are, we have no standard of comparison for. We only know that Welsh and English are um, relatively close to each other because Chinese is so distant. And to a Chinese speaker, Welsh and English are dialects of the same language. Uh, that's an evolutionary statement. We have something to compare the languages with. And we can make a history of language. We can even date the dates at which they may have split. For everything that makes us human, um, I think we can't do that. But for everything that makes us animals, Darwin matters more than anything else. Thank you.